I'm Ben Horton, and live from COP26 in Glasgow, you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us for this first COP26 episode of The Climate Briefing. We've reached the end of week one of the conference and so much has happened that we have to update you on across all areas of of climate policy. There have been developments in the negotiations and it's been a very, very interesting time to be up in Glasgow. I'm recording this now from our guest house in, in northern Glasgow up near the university, which is where today on Youth Day, Friday the 5th of November, a mass protest has already begun to move its way down from Kelvin Bridge all the way down into the city centre of Glasgow to call for much faster action on climate change while all of the negotiators are are over in the blue zone um, at the Glasgow Exhibition Centre. So for this episode, normally we would have some extended interviews for you, but actually this time what we've done is uh, we've spoken to a whole range of different people who are here in Glasgow this week, and we've picked for you four interviews which just give a bit of a flavour of the key discussions that are going on here, and also some of the discussions that maybe should be more central to the agenda but actually are being uh, left on the margins a little bit. So first off, you're going to hear from Anthony Froggart from Chatham House, and he gives me an overview of the key developments in the negotiations, and his highlights from the week. Then we move on to an interview with Nina Jeffs, who is also a colleague at Chatham House, who has been watching the negotiations from the perspective of the issue of gender inclusion within the climate negotiations. And there's so many different interesting dimensions to that that she outlines for us. Then after Anthony and Nina sort of set the scene for us, I've got two interviews lined up with some youth activists who are involved in, in climate action in, in different parts of the world. First off, you'll hear from Pato Kiletsise, who joins me actually down the line from Gaborone in Botswana. And we talk about the work that she's been doing to try and amplify African voices and African expertise in climate action through a podcast and a whole range of other avenues. And we reflect a bit on the uh, extent to which COP26 is really uh, involving the right constituencies of people in their negotiations. Then lastly, you'll hear an interview that I conducted yesterday in a slightly noisy coffee shop, so there might be a bit of interference there, but stick with it. It's a really, really interesting interview with an Icelandic climate activist and UN youth delegate, Finnur Andresen, who talks to me about you know his perspective on being inside the blue zone at COP26, the extent to which young people are really being listened to within the negotiations, and also what the climate priorities of Iceland are. So some really interesting insights from the first week of COP26. Let's get started. Okay, great. So for this first segment for our COP Roundup episode for this week, I'm joined by Anthony Froggart, who is Deputy Director of the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House. We're sort of stuck up in the uh, in the Glasgow House guest house, which is uh, a very glamorous setting for this conversation. Uh, <laughs> Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. How's your week been so far? No, it's been great. I mean, the COP is a strange mixture because we've been looking towards it in terms of our focus of our work for such a long time I and mean, normally it's a year but because it's been delayed it's been two mm-hmm. years so you can imagine we've got lots of projects that are move, have moved in this direction with deliverables in the run-up to it so we had a busy 
couple of months before and then in the weeks running up to it there's all the preparation for the events mm. so you're quite relieved when you get here <laughs> because actually it's finally happening yeah. and then you're running around really quite busy doing events and meeting people mm. and there's sort of new people that you meet and we haven't seen and then there's people you haven't seen obviously for two years because there's the cop and the pandemic so it's yeah. it's a, a bit of a strange mixture really of interest and yeah nice to see people yeah oh, that's really interesting and and just in terms of the substance of the negotiations themselves can you can you just sort of take me back to the start of the week maybe and just, and just tell me sort of going into cop what was the feeling do you think in terms of the outcomes that could be expected what success might have looked like before we got into the actual negotiations themselves. So what the COP is about, Glasgow is different from other COPs because every five years or so you have an important COP and the previous important one was Paris mm. in 2015. And then this one was about reviewing the pledges that were made under Paris. And that's this whole drumbeat that in some ways has occurred over the last 12 months of our countries going to revise their NDCs, their nationally determined contributions. And so we've seen that with the UK announcing at 68% by 2030, the EU is 55%, US coming back into the Paris Agreement because of President Biden mm. putting forward an NDC. So that's been sort of going on and on and on over the last months. And Glasgow was then the final occasion that people could then, the countries could then put in their submissions. So that's sort of what the first couple of days of COP were about. So Monday, Tuesday are the World Leaders Summit. And mm. it, COP is different from a lot of other international processes and fora like this is you tend to have a, or the last couple you've had the world leaders coming in at the beginning making their grand statements mm. then we go into the negotiations and then the ministers come back and then they sort everything out at the end of the second week so that's the geography of it and so yeah monday tuesday world leaders obviously a lot of attention the president g from china didn't come mm -hmm. and vladimir putin didn't come china for me is more understandable President Xi hasn't visited anywhere. So the idea that he would suddenly come to, to Glasgow just didn't make sense. But it has been picked up by certain people, certain countries. I mean, President Biden has mentioned it. Why weren't the Chinese leaders here? And I just think, it, yeah, it was a bit of a non-story. It shouldn't have been made in such an issue. And actually, in one of our, we had a, a meeting on China. Uh, it was EU, China, US on the Monday. And I asked a, a poll of the audience. I said, raise your hands if you think that this should have been an issue. Nobody mm. did. So anyway, I, I think amongst many people, it, it was a non-issue. So anyway, that was the first couple of days, submission of NDCs. India put its NDC in. So that was one of the big ones that people were waiting for. Mixed views on whether or not this was adequate yeah. or suitable. Guess the headlines were a net zero target. Of, but the G20, the weekend before, had said that they would expect net zero targets from the members of the G20 in and around mid-century and India came out of 2070 so I don't know that it I, I think some people that stretched it a bit yeah, in terms yeah, of what yeah. in and around was so anyway but a lot of people welcomed it said actually this is quite significant and it because obviously such a huge populous country and, and such expectations about future emissions significant so that was the Monday Tuesday and then Wednesday was finance day Thursday was energy day and Friday today when we're recording this is Youth Day. And so it's quite interesting what I, how I see the, the, the follow-up to Paris and the Glasgow conference itself is three elements. So the first element is the NDCs that we, mm. we've sort of talked about and whether or not these pledges are going to be increased in line with the requirements of Paris. So five years afterwards, they're supposed to 
uh, reassess these, and that's the process that we're going through. Then the second element is the details of the treaty and the tidying up of the Paris rule book. So issues around global carbon markets, about transparency, about how often they report and what those reports look like. And those are sort of the slightly below the radar, but quite important issues that are the focus of m many of the national delegations. Um, and we can go into that more detail if you're interested, but that, that's going on. And then there's another layer, which in some ways the British government with the presidency has, has orchestrated, which is these different days. Mm, and yeah. within that, there's different multilateral announcements that what they're trying to do is bring together countries and companies in particular that, that mix of private and public sector to drive further ambition in terms of mitigation and adaptation. And so that's also what we've seen this week. So announcements on forestry in terms of pledges to stop cutting down old forests and, and start building new forests and money to do that. Pledges on and numbers of countries coming towards saying addressing flaring of methane. Mm issues around finance, new mechanisms and, and coalitions to, to only fund clean investments. On coal, the Power Impasse Coal Alliance, getting more members, the countries that are pledging to phase out coal, pledges on funding of fossil fuels. And then, so a series of these that are part confidence building, part assisting with the pledges. And what we saw yesterday was at the Power Impasse Coal Alliance, the International Energy Agency, Fatih Burrell, saying that they've done the calculations and they say as, as a result of this, if you add all, everything up that's happened till now, global temperature rise would be capped at about 1.8 degrees. Right. So prior to this, the, the round of new NDCs, people were talking about maybe 2.2. Yeah. So there's been some changes. I mean, I think we have to look at the numbers mm -hmm. and I, yeah, I'm slightly sceptical of it. But yet there's definitely... We have seen more pledges from national pledges and more of these sort of sectoral announcements that will or have to lead to, to re reductions in emissions. So in that way, it's been quite positive. And yeah. I think the, the, there is a, a sense that it's going the right direction. I think obviously that this whole the whole question really is about speed. Mm. It's the speed of transition. I think ev everyone accepts, not everyone, but most people accept we have to go to net zero. Most people are accepting that we need to get as close to 1.5 degrees as possible, and even that will have significant impacts. But then it's just a question of how fast we get there and how frustrated people are with the process. And the demonstration of delivery, I think, is probably the, the, the key thing is, yeah, pledges are fine. Mm. There's an expression, not in my term of office, <laughs> you know, instead of not in my backyard, yeah, yeah, and yeah. A, a Nimtof, and... 2050 is definitely not in my term of office. So you, it's very easy for a government to pledge, we're going to be net zero in 2050 and they'll be long gone. So mm. um, yeah, there's a real sense they have to be showing what happens through to the next decade to 2030. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I suppose that particular dynamic, that kind of time period thing, that that's something that has actually been the focus of, of quite a lot of the UK's own sort of climate policy announcements, hasn't it? I suppose that it's interesting then that the government in their net zero strategy and in other announcements, they've been talking on a much more compressed timeline. Do you, is that partly because you think they've been trying to kind of be the chairman kind of role model player in this because of COP this week? They're sort of saying, you know, we're going to do this in the next five, ten years rather than 30 years ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's a combination of things. I mean, I think that the for the UK government, having the presidency has 
shone a light on their own policies like nothing else. Mm. And they've known that they would be called out if they didn't have things in place. And so I think that has ensured that things that were supposed to happen did happen and that they happened prior to COP if they were going to happen at all. So, I mean, I think that's the announcement 10 days before COP of a quite detailed net zero plan covering a large number of sectors. It's by no means perfect, but it it has moved forward or it has demonstrated the UK thinking in a number of areas. Mm. I think one can very easily point to areas which in which it is still very lacking. I mean, just my own personal thing is that the big announcement in the UK was about phasing out water heaters or, or central heating in, in gas central heating in individual housing. And then the discussion about are we then going to use electric heating or ground source heat pumps or air source heat pumps. For me, it was just, it's insulation. It's yeah. just, but yeah, that's not quite <laughs> a headline grabbing, put some more loft insulation and cavity wall insulation. But they are demonstrating very clearly, or they're, they're trying to demonstrate that they are understanding the complexity and what needs to be done. And they are doing it more than they ever have. Mm, yeah. Another big question coming into coming into the conference, I know, was uh, around the climate finance question and this uh, $100 billion a year commitment to mobilise climate finance, which has been on the books for you know 12 years <laughs> and has not actually been achieved uh, up till now. Um, what have we seen this week in, in terms of the finance picture? What's, uh, yeah, what's been achieved here? As you said, the, the $100 billion is both symbolic and important in mm. its own right. So it symbolic is because, and its symbolism has grown, I think, over the last two years because of the pandemic, because countries have seen that in actual fact, or developing countries have seen that if developed countries want to, they can actually find a vast amount of money to do what they think is appropriate. And the divisions between on the vaccines has, has highlighted the difference between the developed and the developing world in terms of uh, accessibility to different technologies and, yeah, in this case, vaccines. So in regard to climate change, the 100 billion was pledged. To, so the 100 billion is funding specifically for developed and vulnerable countries per year starting in 2020. Obviously, we're 2021, nearly in 2022, and it's not there yet. And so what Everyone was saying, well, actually, this is a not a huge amount of money, really, for the developed world per se, or in general, to do this. And so it's seen as bad faith not to have achieved it. And I think everyone recognised that. And again, in the same way that the NDCs have been announced over time, we've seen more and more announcements. And that included within COP in terms of Japan offering, I believe it's another 10 billion. Mm-hmm. But it... The announcements are quite complicated and it depends on when they're going to be pledged. So obviously this is was supposed to be per year for five years starting in 2020. So that effectively adding it up, that's 500 billion. But yeah, we have seen more pledges. And John Kerry, who's the US Special Envoy on Climate Change, he made an announcement yesterday in which, so that's Thursday, in which he said that he thought that on the basis of the additional pledges that have come forward in the last few days, that this would be met in 2022. So previously, Boris Johnson had said he thought it would be met in 2023. So it's been brought forward a year in terms of 100 billion. It will see. I mean, it's another one of these we just need to look, look a bit more at the details of it. And it is very difficult because it's, it's questions about is it additional money versus just, 
existing pledges that they've recycled and rebadged to be for climate. Mm. Um, so it's it's more complicated. But I think we are in and around it. It's undoubtedly will be met in the next year or two. But I guess the question is twofold. One is, over that five-year period, will it be 500 million? 500 billion? So i.e. if there's a shortfall before, do they go over it in the end of that five-year period? And secondly, the question is about allocation of money and what's it going to and mm. how efficient is it? Yeah, There's no point just having money. You need to do something sensible with it. And a lot of the funding to date has been gone to mitigation questions, but of adaptation this year is a clear example of where with existing warming of one degree, we're seeing huge consequences. We're already baked in for probably, I think, close to another 0.4. So mm. within a year or two, we will have met 0.5 just with the existing emissions that are in the system. Um, so we know that climate change is going to get worse, is my point, yeah. whatever we do. Um, so we need money for adaptation. Yeah. Mm, that's yeah that's really important thank you um so then just looking ahead we've got one more week another sort of nine days to go at the time of recording what are the big things we want to be watching out for in the second week of cop yeah i think there's again i come back to my three different elements mm. so in terms of the ndc's and those national pledges and i guess probably should have said national pledges plus 100 billion yeah. as two maybe legacy issues that both important and symbolic of the success will we get more announcements or in terms of sector announcements that can add on to emissions reductions we'll have to see and then will we get more pledges so can in a week's time because these aren't that they are part of paris but they're slightly separate yeah. so how, how do they look what other sectoral deals were announced how important are they and there's other issues like gender and development and uh, nature-based solutions, mm -hmm. other key issues. And then the final issue is about the rule book itself. And will we see important changes and, and success in terms of negotiations on that? And that towards the end of the week, well, when we'll know on that. Okay, well, and we'll be back at the end of, uh, of the second week with a similar episode where we'll sort of take stock of, of what's gone on since. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Just finally, what's been your kind of highlight of the week from a Chatham House perspective because obviously Chatham House has been running a lot of events uh, this week and has more next week and uh, obviously you've been in and around the blue zone every day speaking to people so so what's been your personal highlight? I think we ran a session yesterday which was on UK-China cooperation on climate change and um, it, it's a long-running program that is funded by the FCDO and works with some amazing people in China Mm. Uh, and some very good people here but I think we're very lucky to have such partners so because of the situation in China very few people from China have, have come so otherwise we would have had in-person meetings um, but yeah, that wasn't possible and so from a, a nervousness perspective it was a challenge mm. because we were using someone else's system well it started early in the morning so that we could get the right time zone for China so we started at 8.30 and uh, people may have seen there's lots of queuing issues getting in, <laughs> in the building in the morning. So that caused some problems. But just the technical, we had simultaneous translation with a Zoom link, live feeds using a different system in the pavilion. So that was challenging, to say the least. But it worked, so that was a relief. And then the content was amazing. Mm. We were really fortunate to have 
very good speakers, so Chris Stark from the Committee on Climate Change, and then we work, part of our project is the equivalent in China, so the expert panel on climate change. And then Cameron Hepburn, who's from Oxford University, gave a talk on the how the cost of mitigation, uh, or how the cost of the energy transition is falling. Mm. And, and giving examples, and you can see historically, or what he demonstrated historically is how the, they've underestimated the rate of falling costs of new technologies, so solar and wind and batteries, etc. And, and it just over time, you just see that the forecasts are always wrong. They're always underestimating mm. how fast you can do. If you then extrapolate that to the next round of technologies that we need for the energy transition, then the transition becomes really cheap. And his, in a nutshell, his line is the energy transition without subsidies, without taking into account the external costs of climate change, is going to be cheaper than business as usual. Mm, mm. And if we stop and take that on board... Why what, would we not do that? Exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's obvious. So that was the one yeah. talk. And then the second talk was from uh, someone we worked with called Professor Teng Fei, who is from Tsinghua University. And his presentation was on the cost of climate, the future costs of climate change in China. Mm. And so... Took three different scenarios, sort of like the 1.5 degree versus the NDC versus the business as usual. And it's just staggering in terms of what the cost for China of climate change is going to be. And so if you put those two presentations together, why is there any discussion? Mm. I mean, really, if we could have everyone just watch these two and say, OK, I understand that now, then it, yeah. It would be amazing. So anyway, I would encourage, they are online, so I would encourage anyone to just take 20 minutes and watch those two. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks so much. We'll uh, we'll put a link to that video in the show notes for the episode. All right, Anthony, uh, enjoy the rest of your time at COP and thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, so now for this part of the episode, I'm joined by my colleague Nina Jeffs, who is a new Academy Fellow at Chatham House. Nina, it's great to have you on the podcast, first time. Yeah. Hopefully not last time on the pod. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no Happy pressure. to be here. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. So uh, yeah, this is the first sort of big event you've been at with Chatham House, I guess. So how are you finding COP so far? Yeah, it's been hectic but really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. After, like many people, after a year of working from home, you know, being surrounded by thousands of people at once, it's been full on, but it's been mm. fantastic to meet so many interesting, engaged, passionate people uh, mm. working on all different aspects of climate change. Yeah, the thing I've really struggled with is remembering how to do small talk again. <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's been a challenge, but you have more to talk about than I do. No. So we've just heard there from Ant um, about the big developments on the agenda the things that we've seen announced at COP so far but what have you been kind of keeping an eye on? Well I've been keeping an eye on the gender side of negotiations actually and one thing I'd flag that I'm I'm sort of keeping an eye on in the background Mm. is uh, some reports came out recently that were mandated by the the gender action plan about the gender composition of sort of participants at COP and the statistics were really interesting uh, about the last COP 51% 51% of government delegates at the last COP were men, mm. but they took they were 60% of the active speakers and took up 74% of the speaking time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wish I could say I was surprised about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> good to have the good to have the data to back mm, it up. Yeah. 
I think what this shows is, in terms of sort of gender equal contributions to climate change negotiations, it's not just about who's in the room, but also, you know, people's seniority in a delegation mm. and the extent to which people are able to contribute their ideas and contribute to negotiations. So that's something I'll be really interested to see you know, how that progresses at this set of negotiations, especially given some of the challenges around access that we've seen this year as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. And is is the gender issue also something that you're seeing come up in the agenda itself in terms of the substantive policy that we're discussing here? Yeah, absolutely. So since the Gender Action Plan was, was passed as part of the UNFCCC negotiations, gender is actually now an item on the agenda sort of mm. permanently. So this mm. is the first year that, that yeah, that's been a permanent agenda item, which is great. But something new and exciting that's happened at this COP is something called the Glasgow Women's Leadership Statement, which happened on Tuesday, which was a statement proposed jointly by the Scottish Government and UN Women and signed by the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, Prime Minister of Estonia and the President of Tanzania, who are all women leaders. Mm, Awesome. Yeah. So what did that statement involve? I would say there were three kind of key takeaways from it. Firstly, it kind of talks about promoting the leadership of women and girls on climate action. Mm. And that's basically the idea that, you know, women and girls have a lot of knowledge and experience and expertise to contribute to dealing with climate change, whether that's, you know, sustainable agriculture or in the renewable energy sector, but often due to systemic barriers there are often lots of challenges to them fully participating in decision-making or in relevant industries and things. Mm. So it's about really breaking down some of those barriers, supporting women's capacity building so that they can contribute, which you know is good for women and girls, but it's also good for overall climate outcomes. And um, a really key issue that it deals with as well is about supporting initiatives on climate change run by women and girls, because there's a real financing gap you know, a really, really small proportion of the money from multilateral development banks and climate funds reaches women and girls doing grassroots work on climate change. Yeah, I mean, some of the numbers I've heard thrown around are tiny, you know, less than 1% of uh, overall climate finance, although obviously, you know, estimates differ. And, you know, women and girls are often the ones that are actually leading some of that grassroots local action. So so that's a a big area to, to improve. And one other thing is uh, sort of the integration of gender considerations, as well as, of course, you know, other issues of systemic discrimination like race and people with disabilities, you know, the challenges that are faced by many. Um, But there's a push towards integrating some of these social considerations into nationally determined contributions as well. So the leadership statement addresses that too. Yeah, that's super interesting. And what's the vision for the leadership statement then? Is the intention that other countries will sign up to this as well and that gradually it will be become a kind of consensus position? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great way of trying to sort of push the agenda forwards. And it's open for signatures until the Convention on the Status of Women in March 2022. So mm. countries actually have quite a long time to sort of get on board. But I think it's a good way of sort of signalling the direction of travel and the way that it draws on women's leadership from countries where there already are women leaders in Mm. charge is quite a good way of sending a signal. That sounds super interesting and it'd be great to have you on, you know, in in a few months to see sort of how that's progressing and and to talk more about about this question of gender and change. Uh, Thanks so much. So, you know, is there something that you're looking for in, in week two? 
as we look ahead now? Like, is there anything in particular that you're sort of looking forward to? Any particular announcements that we might see on the horizon that you think would be a positive outcome? Yeah, I think more broadly, I'll be interested to see how some of these considerations around gender and social inclusion actually factor not only into the decisions, you know, specifically about gender, but how they actually integrate into some of the other new decisions that are coming out next week, especially Mm. on topics that sort of aren't quite as decided. So, for example, on Article 6, at the moment there's quite a lot of discussion around whether, for example, protection for Indigenous peoples and human rights will be integrated into the operative part of the text, which is the binding part of the text, or whether it will be just sort of setting some principles in the preamble. And, you know, those have quite different implications. Mm. So I'll be interested to see that sort of social inclusion, human rights side of things in Article 6, and also when it comes to loss and damage as well. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, there's quite a big financing gap mm. for organisations and initiatives on climate change run by women and girls. So when it comes to some of the finance-related decisions coming out next week as well, that's something I'll be keeping an eye on too. Great. Well, Nina, thanks so much for for coming on The Climate Briefing and definitely looking forward to having you back. Thanks so much, Ben. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. All right. Well, so far, we've been speaking to a range of different people from here in Glasgow, but I'm just taking a few minutes out from the conference to speak to someone who who can't be in Glasgow this week, but who's still very much involved in the climate action agenda. I'm joined down the line by a fellow podcast host, Pato Kilesitze, who's calling from Gaborone in Botswana. Pato is the host of Sustain 267, a podcast which looks at climate change from the perspective of the African continent and platforming African expertise on climate action. She's also an advocate for climate justice with a gendered lens as part of Africa's wider development. Pato, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ben. It's great to meet you. And I have to say, it's it's a funny conversation because we sort of cross paths on Twitter as ever <laughs> these uh, sort of strange interactions but it's a it's a wonderful platform for meeting new people so so thanks so much for agreeing to speak to me I, I just wondered maybe just to begin maybe you could tell me a bit about your feelings about COP26 with sort of a few days into it now it's still early on in the summit but what are your reflections on on the conference from afar how does it look from abroad From following it so far, I think there's some good commitments that have been made, um, a few questionable ones, but I think for me, the jury's still out on if COP will be a success or not. And yeah, let me not say anything so early. I mean, it's only what the second day today, so let me not get second or third day. Let me not get my foot stuck in my mouth yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. It it is early days, but I think you can glean quite a lot from the outcomes from the Leaders' Summit, which which has just finished. People have started to go home. But just picking you up on that then, what do you think success would look like from this conference? What were your expectations, maybe particularly from an African country's perspective? I think for me, um, definitely funding, um, delivering on the funding that has been pledged up to date um, mm. in terms of your loss and damage funding to developing countries, increased funding for adaptation as compared to just concentrating the bulk of it on mitigation, finance, delivering on finance. So I think a lot of it for me is just people delivering on what they've been saying they'll deliver on 
and delivering the way that they say they'll deliver on it. So um, definitely loss and loss and damage. In, more incorporation and more centering of gender in these solutions and um, even in the funding as it comes out, how does it incorporate gender considering that women and specifically women in the global south are the worst affected by climate change? And if they're the worst affected, then we maybe need to have them accommodated in a way that shows that they will be worse affected by everyone. I said at the um, you've really been an advocate for climate justice. Just to put you on the spot, could you could you maybe tell us a bit about you know what climate justice means to you? So climate justice for me is as we're addressing the climate crisis and coming up with climate solutions. Climate justice for me is coming up with solutions that are fair for all. Usually I'd use equitable, but to just put it simply, fair for all. So as we talk about going solar and so forth, where is the solar coming from? Where's the cobalt coming from? We're talking about solar, but a lot of this is riding on the back of child labor in the DRC. We're talking about planting trees as carbon sinks across the African continent but this is resulting in people getting displaced from their ancestral lands, leading up to what's now even being referred to as what you call this conservation refugees, which is a very terrible word that I just learned of, I think, a week or two ago. It's really sad that we it even exists. But addressing climate solutions where we're not sacrificing one part of the world for another part of the world and, yeah leading the conversation once again is the global north who are the people who are mostly cumulatively responsible for the emissions which have us here so it's a little worrying that the people who got us here are also the ones who are the leading voices for the solutions that are going to get us out of this situation which means even their solutions are very when you when you look at them from an from an african lens they're almost um, patriarchal and dictative of how we should address the climate crisis. We're being told, no, you can't invest in certain types of energy. We'll give you money, but you can only invest in these types of energies. And this is being said by the people who have done most of the damage. So it's <sighs> that big sigh is 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 what it is. We need we need African leaders and African countries at the forefront of these solutions as well, not just coming with a begging bowl, but also um, leading on some of these decisions. And as they're made, saying, no, we will not accept that, um, offer something else. So I do wish that we had a bit more, I don't know, power and a bit more weight. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will have empathised with that sigh. <laughs> but thank you for saying that. I just wondered if you could just tell us a bit now about the podcast that you're involved with, Sustain 267. What are you trying to do with that podcast and how does it relate to what we've been talking about? Okay, so Sustain 267 podcast, I started it last year, 2020, uh, during the during the lockdown. I'd always wanted to do something. I'd always wanted to do it, but just didn't have the time. And finally, I had nothing but time. And the whole idea behind Sustain 267 is to amplify African voices within the environmental movement. So it's 
conversations with Africans around climate change. So if we need an expert, we're talking to African scientists who historically are terribly funded for research in Africa. Most of the research that's being done in Africa is by non-African researchers. They're the ones who are getting funded. And then we're also talking to African activists because they're the ones who know the challenges that they face most. Um, We're talking to Africans who are living with the effects of the climate crisis and what they're going through. We have an episode where we're talking to Malaysians when there was the oil spill just off their coast to hear what's happening and not just hear it from non-African media. So the whole idea behind Sustain 267 is having conversations with Africans on climate change, on environment, to share their stories, their experience, their research, and um, trying to get more of that out into the world. Because currently, a lot of the research is from the global north. Even here, as we're taught about climate change, as we're taught about the climate crisis, a lot of the material is not from Africa, and we need to have more resources and knowledge publicly from Africa. So we're just looking to contribute to that knowledge pool, if I can put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, where can people find your podcast? Is it available everywhere? So it's available everywhere, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast, just look for <laughs> the same 367 podcast and you'll find us there. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on to speak to us. And um, I'm looking forward to listening to the back catalogue of Sustain 267. Pato Kila thank you very much for joining the pod. Thank you. Okay, so now I'm joined in uh, at the fringes of the conference, really. We've found a, a, a quiet-ish corner to stop in, so apologies if there is any sort of background noise that's off-putting here. But I've been joined now by Finna Andersson. Finna's Iceland's UN Youth Delegate on Climate Change, and he's also a board member with the Icelandic Youth Environmentalists Association, um, and he's a, a student in the Netherlands when he's not doing those important jobs. Finner, thanks so much for, for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so, how are you enjoying the conference? What have you been up to? Uh, so far, it's been an incredible experience. It's my first COP conference, so it's all, all very, very new to me, and uh, <laughs> lots of lots of things to learn off the bat. Um, it's been slightly chaotic, trying to work my way through the maze of the conference halls, trying to see the different areas of the different zones, seeing where I can best uh, put my powers into learning or influencing. So yeah, chaos and uh, excitement and learning has been the sort of defining factor so far. Perfect. And what do you see as your kind of role at COP? What, what will you be aiming to do? So my official role at COP, or the reason why I'm here, is because I'm, as you said, the UN Youth Delegate on Climate. So I'm representing Icelandic youth within the Icelandic delegation, uh, which means I'm in the blue zone, uh, where the official negotiations happen and where the sort of country pavilions are. And I see my role as uh, amplifying Icelandic and other countries' youth voices, uh, trying to bring their perspective into the side events, into the negotiations themselves, into the informal discussions happening between sessions. So that's sort of the lobbying influential role that I'm trying to take on. Um, But then of course, trying to develop myself, learn a lot about the different topics being discussed, the process, um, networking with different people. So it's quite diverse and I get to, I can determine my role myself, yeah, on my own. So what are then the, the priorities of young people from Iceland? Did you did you have like a sense of 
the key things that they wanted you to to amplify while you're here? Mm, yeah. So with, when I'm working in the Icelandic Youth Environmentalist Association, uh, I do work with a lot of the members in the association uh, and get a, a quite a good feeling for what their sort of main uh, emphasis is when it comes to climate matters in Iceland specifically. So I'm able to reflect uh, their views in that sense that they want to see increased ambition on behalf of the Icelandic government when it comes to our targets, our emission reduction targets, our uh, contributions in terms of finance to developing countries. Um, and these are things that aren't being uh, recognized currently by the Icelandic government enough. So that's something I'm trying to push for from that perspective. And then I did also host sort of like an online event uh, right before I came here, uh, where I just called for all youth in Iceland uh, who were interested in talking with me before I came. So I was able to get a slightly better idea for the broader perspective of Icelandic youth, because obviously there's uh, not everyone who is interested in climate who's in the association. So I'm bringing their views in a little bit as well, as much as I can. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I mean, it's such an interesting role that you have because we hear a lot about how young people and their priorities are maybe not front and center of, of the COP process. But obviously you're embedded with an actual kind of country delegation as well. So where do you stand on that whole issue of, of youth participation in these discussions? Are, are you optimistic that the voices of young people are being taken seriously? I mean, it's been a long process for this program to be set up. So it's the UN Youth Delegate Program. Uh, and I'm quite new when it comes to that, so I'm personally just getting into learning how it came to be and, and how it works. But it has been a long and difficult process where lots of lots of different people around the world have been pressuring for this kind of system to come into place. And even though it is in place in several countries and it's an officially recognized uh, program within the UN, it is a very privileged position for me, coming from uh, a rich country who can support me to go to the conference, and I have a lot of the capacities just from having higher education to participate properly in uh, lobbying for different topics. But there is a lot of other countries, especially in developing countries, who do not have youth delegates. They just don't have the financial capacity to send them to the conferences or they don't have uh, the political will to set up such a program. So it is a really privileged position and it does represent only a very small fraction of the youth voice. So even though we try our best and it's a step in the right direction, there is um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people around the world who still, whose voices are still not being heard enough uh, when it comes to these matters. Yeah, no, uh, it's an important point. How much collaboration do you have with the other youth delegates from other countries? Are, are you quite a close network? Do you, do you talk a lot together about what's happening? Yeah, so I've just been elected as the youth delegate quite recently, so still embedding myself within the network. But yeah, so far I've met uh, a few other UN youth delegates, uh, especially from the Nordic countries. We often stick together, Nordics, uh, have this sort of special bond for some reason. Great. Uh, but yeah, so I am working with some of the UN youth delegates from the Nordic countries, uh, the Norwegian ones, the Swedish, the Danish, uh, and we try to coordinate our uh, what we've heard at the conference, so in terms of the different negotiations, the side events, um, and we're currently trying to figure out how we can produce a, coll a collective statement uh, where we as Nordic youth come together and pressure the Nordic Minister uh, Council uh, for them to take more ambitious action collectively. But yeah, I think there is a certain degree of collaboration between the delegates, the youth delegates, but it could definitely be enhanced with a, a better structure in the program. And so just finally then, um, we're speaking towards the end of the first week of COP and there's a long way to go in in the discussions that, that are happening here. But what are your kind of key takeaways from this week? Are you optimistic that we can get some good outcomes by 
by the end of next week. What did you think about the Leaders' Summit? How do you think it's gone so far? Yeah, so obviously being my first COP, it took me one to two days to just get into the swing of how the conference works. Right. But having said that, I think it was uh, easier than I expected to get a hang of uh, where my powers are best spent in terms of uh, where I have the most influence, where I can learn the most. So it wasn't as difficult as I expected, even though it has been chaotic. So when it comes to what I, my expectations, my hopes, I'm a very hopeful, positive person by default. So I came in with a decent amount of hope and try to have that as a, a guiding principle because I view it as the only thing I have left. If I don't have the hope, there's nothing that's going to be driving me forward in my activism. But some of the hope has definitely been reduced by the lack of ambition seen in the Leaders' Summit. Uh, we saw very few increased pledges, if any, um, and that's especially disappointing looking to the developed world where they should be taking leadership uh, in these matters, having much, much higher historical emissions, and they just have a much bigger ethical responsibility to take, the, uh, take more concrete action. So heading for uh, an approximated 2.7 degrees warming, as the United Nations Environmental Program has estimated, it doesn't set a very positive tone for the rest of the negotiations that follow in the yeah in the 10 days that follow the leader summit the leader summit really sets the tone for the discussions to come afterwards and if they set the tone for uh, a 2.7 degree warming the possibility of keeping positivity up and, and hope is uh, quite limited yeah that's a distressing thought for sure has there been anything just before we end just anything that has made you a bit more hopeful and any particularly good news that you want to just emphasize? Yeah, I think what I've come to learn is that the COP conferences are definitely an important part of the international political landscape when it comes to climate action. But having said that, it is very important to recognize that it's not make it or break it, in my opinion. It is two weeks out of 52 weeks of the year, and there's so much so many possibilities for action outside the conferences in the local communities yeah. uh, and it goes back to this notion that I've never really fully understood until recently about think globally act locally right. uh, where this these conferences sort of try to set the framework for global action and the real solutions the real initiatives happen on a, on a local national scale so even though the outcomes may not seem positive from the conferences themselves there's a lot of possibilities to pressure for action um, outside the conferences. So I think that's something that gives me hope and, and I'm hoping to explore different possibilities of, of pressuring for more action uh, outside the sort of formal political world and seeing what we can do without these leaders interfering with uh, what we want to achieve. <laughs> a great night to end on. Finner, thanks so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed joining us for these perspectives. Maybe it gives you a bit of a different flavour of what's been going on in Glasgow this week. We'll be back next week with two more episodes from the conference, from the fringes of the conference. And of course, over the next few weeks, responding to, you know, the aftermath of COP26, ultimately what gets agreed here in Glasgow, we will keep you abreast of all of those developments. It will be my colleague Anna next week who will be leading on our episodes because I'm going back home, back down to London to take a bit of a breather. But in the meantime, you can follow all of the work that Chatham House does on the environment and climate change by checking out our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or following us on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Till next time, thanks so much for joining us.